The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good morning. I have a couple of announcements to make. Uh, one is, uh, Martha read about the book drive for the Fair Oaks Community Center and children's books that we gather every, every year, this time of year. And um, uh, the event of passing out the books is on Friday. So the announcement was made, but uh, don't then come next Sunday with books. Um, you know, that, uh, we'll, we'll be bringing the books to Fair Oaks uh, Community Center on Friday midday, I think. And it's a great thing to do. So I think so very, I'm very happy that IMC can offer this thing. The children are very happy to be able to choose books for themselves. And the other is, um, <clears throat> has to do about a practice of generosity and uh, in regards to parking around here. And uh, there's a few things. Uh, I think kind of an instinct of many people is uh, kind of like when you go someplace, you want to park as close as possible. And, uh, you know, I don't know quite why that is, but, you know, heaven forbid you should walk or something. Um, and then you park as close as you can and so that you can get in your car as quickly as you can at the end of this time here so you can go for a hike later. <laughs> or something. <laughs> the, um, so it's actually quite generous. If you, if you happen to come early, it's nice to come early, you know. It's a generous thing to come early so that you can park further away from here. That does a few different things. It takes a little pressure off the neighbors who live here if we don't have so many cars right here. But also there are people who um, have uh, physical limitations where it's harder for them to walk and so they can find a place nearby to park. And also uh, some people do run late and we want to be a place that's relaxed for people to come when they're late and, and uh, it's probably better for all of us if, um, if they're not as late, so late if they, because, it, you know, because they have to park so far away. So, um, so if we have more space nearby that's available for the latecomers then, you know, it works better. How's the hearing system devices? They're all, they're good? Hmm. The other people, yeah, let's get a different one. Let's get a different one for you. So how's that? Is that any better? We'll get a different box for you because other people say theirs are okay. He's going to get one. No, no, not, not a problem. So, um, so also we'd ask you, uh, please do not park in the parking lot across the street here. Uh, there's a new nursing home across the street, and uh, they have asked us not to park in their parking lot, and we want to be good neighbors for them. So, um, uh, uh, so I think it's really important that we don't use the parking lot across the street. So... Other side, I think. So let's let's see. Is that how's that working now? Is it better? Much better. Great. Okay. So. So I believe that uh, our practice, Buddhist practice or mindfulness practice, has the greatest value when it's applied. Uh, not just to ourselves, but in our relationship to the world around us. And that world around us extends uh, to our immediate surroundings, community, and beyond that in circles, going out into a wider and wider 
community, a global community in this world. And Paul said earlier in his announcement about one of the tenets of Buddhism is to connect, I forget exactly how he said it, but to connect to people uh, with an open heart to the, to the universal aspect of our common humanity. And, um, and so uh, since August, I've been wanting to say something about uh, uh, the shooting in Ferguson. It seems like a very important part of our collective world that we live in, part of our circle to be mindful of. And I didn't quite know what to say and uh, it's a hard thing to talk about and I don't know much about some of the related issues and so it's hard for me to uh, talk about it. But uh, it's been kind of stunning to after that to have a whole series of other shootings by police of uh, black people in this country. And, uh, and so it becomes a bigger, bigger part of our collective psyche. Uh, and how do we hold that? What do we do with it in our mindfulness? How do we open up and connect to something like that rather than close down and pull away and keep it as a <clears throat> at a distance. There is a, uh, a myth, Buddhist myth, uh, kind of a fairy tale that's uh, very important in uh, our tradition. It's a story of a serial killer named uh, Angulimala. And Angulimala uh, was, you know, was going around the countryside killing many people and uh, People were quite scared of him. And when the Buddha heard about him, uh, the Buddha walked into the woods where Angulimala lived, even though people said, don't go in there, it's dangerous for you. And uh, Angulimala saw him and saw this, you know, a, a mendicant, a monk who has no weapons, no nothing, just robes, and probably thought, wow, my good luck. And, uh, and, and so... Uh, uh, he started going after the Buddha, following him down the road. And, and as the Buddha walked calmly, Angulimala tried to catch up to him. And even running after the Buddha, he couldn't catch up to the Buddha walking calmly. It's kind of the fairy tale part of the story. And so finally, Angulimala yells out, Stop! And the Buddha says, uh, said, um, continues walking and says, um, I've already stopped. Why don't you stop? And, you know, it's a metaphoric way of speaking, you know. And that got, that got Angulimala's attention. And then he finally, then he was willing to hear what the Buddha had to say. And I guess what he realized was that the Buddha even, uh, had, you know, had metaphorically stopped, he'd stopped his greed, hate, and delusion. And Angulimala was still operating in a greed, running, greed, hate, and delusion. So the Buddha said, why don't you stop? So... In Phoenix, a week or two ago, or I forget it was, a police officer said to a black man to stop as he was running away. And what would have happened if he had said, I've already stopped, why don't you stop to the police officers? Would they have understood? <laughs> Instead, the police officers shot him dead as he was running away, unarmed black person. What do we have to stop in this country? What, has to, what do we have to address and, and face? And uh, these things happen so many times. Um, it was just stunning for me again to just to, last week something, a 12-year-old in Cleveland named Tamar Rice was playing with a uh, gun in the playground and a police officer shot him dead. And um, a 12-year-old, it's kind of amazing. And uh, I tend not to look at videos, but I saw the video of that one. 
And I just couldn't get, I couldn't believe it, what I saw. I couldn't, I couldn't believe how that could have happened. Uh, how could anybody, how these police officers have done what they did? I just couldn't, just, it didn't make any sense. So a few weeks ago, uh, a month in October, I was teaching uh, a retreat, week-long retreat with Ruth King, who's a marvelous African-American Dharma teacher. And she's done a lot of thinking and teaching about diversity and racism in our country. And so I was very fortunate that she had great conversations with this topic. And so I I brought up all kinds of things with her and it was nice. I learned a lot from her. But the thing that uh, I learned the most, the thing that really touched me in a very good, I think very important, meaningful way. I was saying something to her about my experience of uh, African-Americans in America. And I, exactly, I, I, exactly, I forget exactly what I said, but it was something like, I've noticed that in how African-Americans relate to me, uh, sometimes they, I feel a sense of caution in being held back. But then at some point, the pendulum swings quite strongly, it tilts over, and there's tremendous warmth. And so I was just kind of asking, what's, you know, what's, that's different than, it's the, I feel that it's a different way of relating than other people and, uh, who relate to me and other people of diverse backgrounds. They, they don't, this is not, not the quite same dynamic. And, um, and then this is what she said. She said something like, of course, it's because we're kin. It's because we're family. And that, I kind of like stunned me. And immediately, immediately what I, what I, um, God, I understood, or what, uh, is that um, the um, African Americans and European Americans have been intertwined, entangled with each other for centuries in this continent. <coughs> and they've interbred. And there's very few African Americans who don't have European blood. Uh, we're family. You know, we're connected in deep ways. And it's a connection which the white people have mostly denied and pushed away. And how many, uh, you know, uh, slave-owning white men have fathered African-American children and then just not related to them or sold them off and passed them on to other places and kind of denied it, denied their, their family. And so here, you know, we're family and it's been denied, it's been held at a distance. And it, it must be so painful or to be, always be on the receiving end of the pushing away and, and uh, not being recognized and not being included as kin, as family. So when Ruth said that to me, as I said, it had a big impact on me. So my background is that um, I was born in Norway. M- uh, much of my growing up was in Europe. And much of my adult life was in the United States. And I have never, you know, for most, you know, I never really wanted to strongly identify as an American. Uh, because, you know, I had this European background. And it seemed like whenever I came back to America, there was something about American what was going on in America, I was like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> Mostly the way white people, you know, behaved. And uh, wars around the world and racism and all kinds of things. And I said, oh, you know, I don't really want to identify with this. And uh, it's kind of strange, you know, I spent most of my adult life here and not, not feel that, you know, kind of hesitant in that identification. 
By now, I'm more American culturally than anything, probably, having been here so long. But when uh, Ruth told me that we're kin, African Americans, European Americans, and even though, you know, my background, you know, they've, we've been centuries and centuries in Norway, so, so we mostly bothered the English. <laughs> and um, the, um, when she said that, I, I, uh, one reaction has, oh, n- now I'm ready to be an American. Now I'm ready. I'm kind of, that, I wanted, that that's, makes sense to me. So the idea that we're kin. And um, so what does it mean to open our hearts? What does it mean to open up and to include the other? And, um, and to see the other as someone we open our hearts to. I think that Buddhist practice is a very important practice to help us open our hearts. But opening our hearts is not enough. We also have to also watch our minds. And this is the combination of what, you know, we open our hearts and we watch our minds. And th- then I think we can live in a safe world. And, um, but opening our hearts means that we feel connected to others, we're, we have our love for them, our care for them, we're there for them, we're willing to be present. But watch our mind is so important because uh, our minds are capable of all kinds of odd things. Maybe not to all of you, but at least some of you, I think. And, um, and so we produce these thoughts and concepts and ideas and judgments and biases and preference that we have uh, so quickly. All people do this. And, um, and uh, I, one of the first lessons I had in this was when I was 18, I was uh, traveling in Morocco. So this was 1971, probably. And, uh, and uh, it was the first time I'd been to a non-Western country by myself. I was traveling around with a couple of friends. A couple of friends. And I noticed that, uh, and so a lot of the, it was pretty traditional back then in some of the places we went. And uh, people wore their traditional clothes and men wore these yalabas, which is these long kind of gowns or robes. And um, with hoodies. And, um, and then uh, I, uh, I noticed that after some time in Morocco that um, there was a kind of a lightness in my mind, a particular kind of light or open feeling in my brain that I was unfamiliar with. And then I got curious and continued being in Morocco and what is this going on? And finally I, I determined that what was going on was I had no context for judging the people in Morocco. In, in, in America, you know, I was a hippie, whatever that meant, a white middle-class hippie. And, um, and uh, there were people who, you know, there were strained relationships with, you know, like the conservatives and the rednecks and the jocks and the, you know, businessmen and you know, and I see these people around and I would have a little reaction to them. But in Morocco, I had no context for, you know, this man with Yalaba, you know. Was he a Democrat, Republican? 
you know, I don't know. What, you know, just, was he a jock? You know, I don't know. And um, so, so that, that part of the brain that was involved in judging or evaluating and reacting to people based on these concepts uh, wasn't operating. And that's why I had this lightness in my mind. And that was kind of a wake-up for me that, you know, how my mind operates and what the impact that my mind is to be in reaction to people. So to have an open heart and watch your mind is to start noticing what the mind is doing. And it's very powerful to be, have the mindfulness strong enough and present enough that you can watch the birth of a thought, the birth of an impulse, birth of a feeling. Because if you can really see it at the birth of it, then you can, um, you can put a question mark behind it. Is this really true? But if you don't see the birth of a thought, an idea, a concept, a judgment, and it's kind of like barrels ahead and just lives in your mind and you're kind of paying attention to other things while the concept is operating, it can be very easy to take it to be the truth. So the example I like to give is someone's walking on the sidewalk and someone comes down the sidewalk who's, um, you know, looks really scary to you. So you're happily going along and being mindful, your mind is relaxed. And you notice the arising of fear or the rising of the idea, well, that's a dangerous person. And rather than, and sometimes people are dangerous. So you, you know, it's a, you know, sometimes that's a good thing to notice. Uh, but if you notice the birth of that and put a question mark behind it, it means you can look again. Is this really true? And you can take ownership for why you might be thinking this person's scary. Oh, this looks like the bully in high school that I, I trouble with. And it's not, not, not that person, but it looks like that person. So that's why it's scary. Or, you know, all kinds of things. You kind of look at and look more carefully. And we make judgments of each other all the time. You know, probably human beings are human judgers. And I don't know if it's bad. I don't know if it's bad to judge people, you know, just because we don't want to make bad something that's kind of so basic to human nature to be judging, evaluating, having, you know. But we have to be responsible about it and careful about it. And that's why watching the mind... So, you know, they say a a, a watch pot never boils. The Buddhist saying is, a watched mind never boils. A watched mind never gets caught up in anger and rage and all these things. (laughs) Watch your mind. Open your heart and watch your mind. And and so in terms of race relationships in America, for everyone, I think, everyone involved um, in American society, Watch your mind and see what you do and see the concepts you're operating under and be very careful. Have question marks behind it and all that. Angulimala said to the Buddha, stop. And the Buddha said, why don't you stop? And I could well imagine that many black people in America could say that to white society. Why don't you stop? You know, the, the... the white people get benefits in this country that a lot of other people don't get. Certainly a lot of the benefits that black people haven't gotten. But I think it's often not recognized. You know, it's kind of just expected. It's normal to go into a bank and get a loan. And you get, maybe you get the loan normal enough and just take it for granted. Up until 1997, the Department of Agriculture 
gave preferential loans to white farmers over black farmers in this country. 1997. Isn't that amazing? So probably the white farmers just like, this is what you do. You go to the bank and get a loan and, you know, it's kind of ordinary. And if you're a black farmer, you know, it didn't seem fair. They said, but I can just stop. <laughs> you know, we've already had to stop, you know, we're st- but why don't you guys stop? Stop treating one, one pop, you know, the other people preferentially in us, in, in other ways. Housing, uh, housing loans. Uh, the Federal Housing Administration in the 1930s, during the Great, you know, Depression, uh, had rules that uh, applied preferentially to white people. After uh, World War II, uh, vets coming back from the war received a number of benefits that were very important for the, for the economic kind of growth of the United States into the 1950s. And like one of them was that, uh, that some vets got um, educa- grants to go to get education. Who got preference? The white soldiers got more preferential uh, grants to go to school than the black soldiers. Stop. It's a, reasonable, it's a reasonable thing to say to Americans. Stop. But, white, you know, it's so hard for white people. We don't know our history, right? So this, watch your mind. Be, be mindful. Circle, have the circles go out. Be mindful of the world we live in. Also requires some education, some learning. And it doesn't take that much to learn these things. But just a little bit of research to understand what is this world we live in? What is it like to live in a society? And, and what are the benefits we get? And preferential treatment we get. Um, I read recently a, a fascinating book called um, White Like Me. Some of you know the book Black Like Me. And uh, he has, this guy has a wonderful little attitude. I like him. He writes my own experience. He grew up in Nashville and uh, in the white community and you know, in the black community. He had a lot of black friends. He kind of grew up right in the middle of the black community in Nashville and and then at some point when he went to middle school, he had always, you know, most of his friends were black. And uh, then they all went together to middle school. And then he watched as the schools began to separate the whites and the blacks in the schools. And it didn't make any sense for him because he, he, uh, he, didn't, have, he didn't have good grades. <laughs> but he was given the preferential uh, classes over the blacks. And he, it was very painful for him to watch. And he goes through the history, the book goes through a little bit of the history of, uh, from, you know, colonial times of, um, of how it was like, what it's like to have been a white person in America. And uh, he talks about uh, centuries of affirmative action for white people. Centuries. And how long has affirmative action been going on for black people in America? You know, some places have been going on for maybe a, a couple of decades, few decades, and, you know, how does that balance? The balance, you know, four centuries of one and four decades of the other. Is, is, is four decades going to even it out? Um, so housing loans. The other thing was, you know, uh, some of you probably know this, that uh, some, some cities in America had vibrant uh, African-American communities uh, growing African-American middle class. <clears throat> so uh, then the America decided to put and have an inter, inter, interstate highway system to put all these highways around, to build highways. And so um, guess what uh, communities they 
avoided putting highways through. In the white communities. That's nice for the white people. The black people, they put their highways through these inner city places, uh, cities and just cut right through these communities and kind of destroyed them in the process. Over and over, many, many places. You can see it. You don't see it in San Francisco anymore, but I used to live in the corner of up there in Lower Haight. And... Uh, and uh, you could, you know, and there was a freeway on ramp, off ramp that came from, um, I guess, 101. It came right down to Fell, right? Was it Fell? Came up to, and uh, it was quite a big impact. I lived right, actually, I lived right next to the freeway for a while, on Oak Street. You could hear the freeway at my window, look out and watch people going by. And so you know, it, had to, I mean, it was very, it depressed the whole area to have this freeway. It made it dark and unsafe and. And, uh, it was, and, uh, and now they've cut it down and the place is becoming vibrant and a wonderful place, wonderful, nice community. They have trees and all that. And guess who lived there before the freeway and guess who's living there after the freeway? So who gets the preferential teaching, treatment? So one more thing I'll say about this thing is about the white benefit is that one of the fastest forms of growth of wealth for people in the United States is the growth in the value of their home. And uh, guess whose home values go up the fastest? It tends to be people in white communities. Uh, who gets the most help from their parents to get loans for first-time home buying? Uh, one statistic I read is that 46% of white people have gotten uh, co-loans or support from their parents in order to buy their first home, their home. 12% of black people. So it's kind of, and so if, if there's loans are more preferentially given to, black, to white people, if support for it is happening for white people, um, and then if, if housing prices rise more fa- quicker in white people's neighborhoods, uh, who's left behind? Who's getting preference? Who has, where's the affirmative action working? Right, so, so are, are white people still recipient of affirmative action in our country? And I would say there's a good argument they are. So Angulimala, Buddha said to Angulimala, stop. And when are the white people going to stop? When are we going to stop? When are we going to kind of understand what's going on here? So that the, uh, there's lots of, uh, not just African Americans in this country, but lots of people in this country uh, can have a fair chance, an equal chance the idea of equal chance is like, I think it's a value that is held deeply in America, but it's hard to see it. It's hard to understand it. And, uh, and it's very hard to have these conversations because, you know, the, uh, it's very hard not to take these things personally. So for white people, as soon as these things are talked about, all these white people with good intentions sometimes are the most dangerous ones because they have these good intentions, so it's hard for them to see what's going on. They don't want to say, wait a minute, stop, I'm not doing this. You know, it's not me. It's somewhere else, the problem. And, uh, but there are good people. There are certainly good intentions. But if you're supporting and being, acting in a system of preferential treatment for white people, it's reasonable for other people to say, wait a minute, stop, take a look at this. What's going on here? It's not fair for us what's going on. And so, 
many people in our, in our society struggle with lack of opportunity, lack of fairness, lack of openness, and lack of and, uh, understanding, lack of really people seeing them, seeing what's going on. And if there's one thing that I've learned as a teacher over the years is that uh, being seen for who you are, being really seen well, is one of the greatest gifts that we give people. Mm-hmm. And one of the greatest gifts our parents can give to us if they, if they do it. If our parents don't do it to us, it's a tremendous uh, burden to not be seen. And so how do we, you know, open our hearts and see everyone, understand everyone? And I don't think we can rely only on our good hearts, only on moment-to-moment mindfulness, just what's right in front of us. I think also, and really understand other people having the American experience, having the immigrant experience, having the Native American experience, having the poor experience, that it takes a little bit to, in, uh, for all of us to be curious, to be interested, to learn. What is this? Who is this person? What's this person's experience? What's this person's background? To watch our minds and watch and see um, what assumptions do we have? What reactions, what responses do we have? And to learn through mindfulness to stay open, to keep our hearts open. If we're afraid, if we're prejudiced, if we're, you know, towards people, if we don't, we don't want to get close to people, to watch that and see that and know it and learn how to be wise about that and how to work through that or not have it interfere with an open heart. Um, and, um, and to be humble. The, um, I'm not probably humble enough, but certainly one of the reasons I didn't want to give this talk was um, I don't, I didn't, you know, I don't, I don't know how to talk about this. You know, it's so difficult. I don't feel like I've done much study or understanding of it, and so it's easy to, uh, you know, just add suffering upon suffering because you talk about it in ways that are ignorant. But one of the things I've learned uh, through my study of diversity issues is the it's hard to you can't just do the, enough study to understand everyone and uh, and you have to be very careful not to assume that <clears throat> someone in a group that you identify with a group like you know like the black people are a unified group they all have the same experience and so you can study anything all kinds of you know Things and it doesn't really help you maybe with the person in front of you. So one of the important principles in diversity work is uh, cultural humility. And so to have a not knowing mind, to be willing to find out what's going on there. Who is this person? So I'll give you two uh, little stories of my life about how I learned, not exactly cultural humility, but, but uh, how important it is to not have preconceptions of people and be curious and approach people like you don't, you don't really know them. Let's find out who they are, what goes on. One was a simple story, painful story of <clears throat> working. I was working at a restaurant as a cook and I was in the changing room, end of my shift, and there was a new shift for someone else coming on. My, a friend of mine who I'd known for some time, we were friendly, came in to change and, and I said, uh, I kind of jokingly, <clears throat> maybe a little bit teasingly, 
said hello in some playful way. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> and uh, and I didn't take the time <coughs> to find out how he was, what was going on. So he told me that one of his best friends had just died. <coughs> oh no, you know, I didn't do a lot of damage, but you know, I could have at least waited a moment or two to see, get a sense of him and see what was going on. And then uh, I took it at a workshop in the early 80s with Stephen Levine. He, did, he, did, he would do these death and dying workshops. Anybody do these workshops with him? And um, he was brilliant and, uh, in his work, very intuitive and you know, really great. And um, so I had, uh, did it in Marin County a weekend, sunny, outdoor place, outdoor, beautiful place, kind of, I don't know, I remember being outdoor in the courtyard before it started. And there were all these, you know, you know, again, you know, if you make a little bit of room for my narrow mind and a way my mind can make assumptions and judge people or something, I'll tell you how I saw people. I, I kind of like, um, these are all nice, middle-class, Marin, white people who are healthy and normal. Whatever that is. <clears throat> and then we went into the workshop. And what these people were carrying with them just blew me away. Some of them were dying. Some of them, their children, the young children had just died. Some of them, their parents had died. So this and that had happened. And um, <clears throat> and I realized that I didn't know who they were, and that the assumptions I had, you know, out in the courtyard, were didn't really do justice to who they were, and that had a big impact on me to uh, be willing to kind of drop my assumptions and be curious. It was cultural humility. Who is this person? Well, let Let's find out. Let them. <clears throat> let's listen carefully. <clears throat> I'm not going to ask. Maybe I want to ask a lot of questions because that could be presumptive. But maybe I'll just let them show themselves and reveal, let them, let them know. Who is this person? What's going on? So to have an open heart and to watch your mind uh, allows you to have certain cultural humility or certain kind of... Uh, in Buddhism, sometimes they talk about having a not-knowing mind. To not know. To go in, I don't know. Yes, I think this way, but I don't know. And then who is this? What's going on here? So I hope that um, <clears throat> I hope that all of us are impacted by these series of shootings of black people in America. I hope that all of you take it in in the best possible way, and that it changes you for the better. That somehow you take it in and take it as something very important to be conscious of, to be mindful of and be aware of. Not to close down, not to be horrified, not to get angry, but to use it to be motivated to improve our society for everyone. To be motivated to change for the better. If, the, if we are impacted by these things and we're not changed, if we're impacted by these things, we're not at least willing to kind of see how we can live in a better way. 
And if, if we're impacted by them and say, it's only those people, it's out there. It's a police department in Cleveland. Yeah, boy, there's stories in this last week about the police department in Cleveland. There was a federal investigation about the police department in Cleveland. And they concluded that Cleveland Police Department uh, regularly used excessive force like when they used a taser for the man who was strapped down on the gurney in the ambulance. So, how do we become better people? How do we live in this, in, as members of this society as a better people? So rather than being weighed down by this, the Buddhist approach is to be, is to be impacted by this and then be inspired to do better. To, be cha- to change. It doesn't mean that you have to go to Cleveland and talk to the police department, but it means that um, uh, maybe you're more sensitive to the experience of what it's like to be an American for African Americans and Native Americans. Maybe it's more sensitive to what it's like to be white. <clears throat> A lot of my diverse friends, you know, non-white friends, um, they're kind of patiently or not so patiently, waiting for white people to understand better what it means to be white in the society. Please, they said, please, learn what it's like. Learn a little bit about it. Don't just take it for granted like it's ordinary or normal to be what, what it's like to be white in the society. It means something. There's affirmative action that many of the white people have received for years. And until we understand those things, Maybe it's going to be hard to have an equitable society. So sometimes our mindfulness practice, we turn in within. <clears throat> sometimes we take our mindfulness and turn out. And there's a rhythm of going in and out. Sometimes we go in in order to find how to become wise and calm and, and uh, not to be caught by, by our life. And sometimes we go out to discover what it's like to be a human being and to live in this world. And to go back and forth, in and out, uh, is hopefully a way, that rhythm is hopefully a way that we can live in wide and good ways, connecting to everyone with our universal goodwill. May all beings be happy. Thank you.